Morning, guys. Good to see y'all. It's good to see y'all hail the power of Jesus' name now that we've celebrated his resurrection on Easter and his ascension and he and the Father pouring out the Holy Spirit on Pentecost Sunday. We enthrone him and hail the power of his name. Several of you have asked me what we're going to study next year. I'm already uh, looking forward to it and getting excited about it. We're going to study the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. That would be Job and Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of, uh, Song of Solomon, of course, my favorite. That's about sex and romance. I love that one. Uh, some of you have said, how are we going to read all those pages in the Bible? Well, just get ready. Uh, we're going we're gonna to take selected psalms, and we'll certainly take Job in chunks so that we can understand the basic thrust of, of uh, Job, and then we'll uh, lump some of the Proverbs so that we can study that thematically and so on. So we'll, we'll make our way through it. It'll be a great, great time. Uh, the Bible does give us wisdom, and Jesus Christ is wisdom incarnate. And, of course, he's the end of all of it. Uh, so we'll go back to our Old Testaments next year and, and uh, study that together. So that's what we're doing beginning in September. Today we are getting very close to finishing Second Peter. And we turn to this very famous and useful passage in Second Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. That's on page uh, 2030. Your Bible ought to just automatically open to page 2030 by now, I think. Uh, and as you're turning, let me give you a little background. You remember that in P Peter's second letter, we believe it's likely that this is written to the same people to whom he wrote 1 Peter. It's likely that his first letter that he refers to is 1 Peter. It's possible it could be some other letter we don't have in the Bible, and it's some other group. But we think it's probably the same group to whom he wrote 1 Peter. And Peter has been writing them with the concern primarily that they stand firm and that they watch, take care to watch their souls, that they not slip away, that they not apostatize, that they persevere. And you'll notice this theme comes out very clearly in chapter 1 when he uh, says to them, uh, you know, that if you do these things, you will not fall away. But he, he says to them, here's how you, here's how you stay firm by what you believe and what you practice. And the two go together. And that's how you're going to stand firm. You believe certain things that have convictions and you begin to work them out in your life. And that's the way those convictions get rooted in your heart. Notice, for example, in chapter 1, verse 5, he says, for this reason, make every effort to add to your faith. So your faith is being added unto. You add goodness and you add knowledge self-control and so on, until you end up with the end of that series uh, with love at the end of verse 7. So your life is to be what you believe and what you're doing. And then he says, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and productive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says in verse 10, Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never fall. So, the chief concern of the letter is that you'll never fall. You'll never slip away. And the way you're going to do it is through Christian belief and Christian practice, following the Scriptures. Then when you get to chapter 2, of course, Peter launches into his concern about the false teaching. And why is he so concerned about it? Because you're likely to listen to it and be led astray by it. And when you're led astray, what happens? You end up slipping away and falling 
It's dangerous. That's the reason Peter takes it on. And they had some serious false teaching in their own community that Peter was addressing. And he says, of course, in chapter 2, those false teachers are going to come under judgment because God is going to judge all of those who uh, not only turn from the gospel but turn others away from the gospel. Now we turn to chapter 3 where we begin today and he's going to be talking about those who scoff at this. So there's some who will be scoffing that God has any judgment at all and that it's coming at all. So you can see where his concern is. He's concerned that we be kept safe through Christian belief and practice. He's concerned about those who would lead us astray. He assures us they're going to be judged one day. And he says, now watch out. There's some who don't even believe in judgment. That's part of the false teaching that's going on. We'll see how dangerous it is even as we study it today. So let's look now at the first 10 verses of 2 Peter 3 as he discusses these scoffers. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our fathers died, they say. Everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Okay, first of all, he teaches us in verses 1 and 2 that wholesome thinking is grounded in the Scriptures. Now notice in verse 1 he says he's written both of his letters to stimulate us to wholesome thinking. Uh, some of you are familiar with the the famous philosophical writings of Immanuel Kant called uh, of, uh, On Pure Reason. Pure Reason. That's basically how you could interpret this. Pure Reason. Uh, wholesome thinking. Same thing. And Peter is saying he wants to stimulate us so that we can think clearly. And that's really what the Christian faith does for you. It's what the Bible does for you. It gets everything sorted out, frames it up for you, so you can think clearly. You know, anytime you're looking at a business problem or a relational problem, uh, a parenting problem, whatever it is, you have to frame it up. You have to be able to, be able to nail down the basic non-negotiables in your life and in this area of expertise and frame it up and make a decision. If you're making a business decision, you better know how to do accounting. You have to frame it up. What are the realities out there? You better know something about marketing. Frame it up. What's the market like? And you 
frame up your situation, then you can think clearly about it. And that's exactly what Peter is doing. He's framing the world up for us and all of human history. Frame it up, and then you can think clearly. And the problem with most people is they don't have a framework. They don't even think they need a framework. They just live out of their own most recent lusts. And he says, I want to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. And you'll see that wholesome thinking has to do with the Scriptures. He says, I want to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. So first of all, he, he's saying this involves the Old Testament. I want to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets. Folks, you have a fundamental decision to make. There are two groups of people. You know, some people say there are three types of people. Those who make things happen, those who watch things happen, and those who say, what happened? Uh, but uh, the, the Bible really presents two groups of people. Those who basically believe what the Bible says and basically those who don't. You have a fundamental decision to make. Are you going to believe what the Bible says and that's going to frame it up for you? Or are you going to uh, you're going to reject the Bible and try to frame it up some other way. And what the Bible presents to us and what the ministry of Jesus Christ presents to us is fundamentally two groups of people. They're called sheep and goats. One on the right, one on the left. And all of human history is going to be divided between those two choices that men make. And you make the same decision at the table today that men throughout the ages have had to make. Are you going to frame it up with the revealed Word of God? Or are you going to reject that and say it's not the Word of God and frame it up some other way? And that's exactly what Peter is saying. I want to stimulate you to pure thinking. I want to present to you the decision you have to make. Are the prophets true or not? Are the apostles true or not? And what I'd like for you to do, he says to them, I'd like for you to believe the, the, the prophets and the apostles. And that will frame this situation up for you. It will frame up human history for you. In the midst of which you'll make your daily decisions today about your marriage, about your girlfriend, about... Uh, that's not both, it's either or. Uh, <laughs> about your business and about your church life. So he says, first of all, the Old Testament. I want to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets. And you'll notice he refers to this in chapter 1, verses 19. He says, we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we believe a miracle. We believe that the Holy Spirit of God, God Himself, carried along the prophets and gave them the message. And what we have is God's Word. And therefore, we are to bow the knee to it. We are to believe it, to receive it, and to put it into practice. And Peter says, I just want to remind you again to believe the Scriptures and put it into practice. You go, well, duh. You know what? The most important things in your life, the most important things in your life are the simplest things in the Scriptures. Honestly. It's not rocket science. Most important thing in your life are the simplest things in life. If you get the simple things right, you're framing it up. And it's amazing how you can make nuanced decisions that are very complex when you get the simple things right. Unbelievable. So he's saying, let's deal with the Old Testament as the Old Testament itself claims to be dealt with. And you find 
the view of Jesus in that text I've mentioned here in your notes, Matthew 5, 17 through 19, Jesus says, not a jot, not a tittle will pass away from the law of God until all is fulfilled. That's Jesus' view of the Bible. It's not just every word from God, every jot, every tittle, the least little, least little mark of a Hebrew character, he says. That won't pass away until everything is fulfilled. So his view is not just the plenary that is the whole that is inspired. It's not just the words that are inspired. He's saying every little letter, every little character is inspired. It's the Word of God. That was Jesus' view. And so I think Jesus was a wise person. He knew how to frame it up. He framed it up from the prophets. He learned from the prophets in synagogue. And you find it in his ministry as he teaches from the Old Testament. And, of course, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, he says, Look, Timothy, you were taught this from your grandmother's knee. You know this. All Scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And so all Scripture, he says, and he's speaking, of course, about the Torah, the Old Testament. It's all the Word of God, all breathed out, all to be taken seriously, every part of it. That's the reason that Amen Bible Study, for 13 years, we just go through different parts of the Bible. There's so much of the Bible. We don't need to do any part of it twice. You know, we're, just, we're all over the Bible because it's all the Word of God and it's all useful for life. And there may be some part of it that seems remote to you, but I'm telling you, you need to get it closer to you because once you get it close to you, you see its riches, its beauty, and its power in helping you in your life to frame it up so that you have the general framework of how you're to live life. It's all in God's Word. And the, Peter is just simply saying, look, if you want to be able to think clearly about your daily life, no matter what aspect of your life you're thinking about, you're going to have to take the Old Testament seriously. And then notice not just the Old Testament, but the New Testament as well. He says, and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Now, do you notice this? He's saying it's the command of Jesus Christ. It's the word of Jesus Christ through the apostles. So when you're reading your New Testament, you don't say, as some men have been known to say, well, you know, I really, I really like Jesus. Paul, just not sure about him. <laughs> you know, as though they're in conflict. As though Jesus is speaking out of two sides of his mouth. Here Peter says it. Jesus is speaking through the apostle Paul. Jesus issues his commands. Jesus gives us the theological framework for life through the Apostle Paul, through the Apostle Peter, who's one of his apostles, through the Apostle John in John's epistles and in Revelation. That's Jesus Christ speaking to us. He sent them out when he was here in the flesh. And, of course, in Paul's case, he made himself known to him on the road to Damascus and he sent Paul out. So physically, audibly, he sent his apostles out. But he continues to send them out and empower them by the Holy Spirit at Pentecost so that they speak by the sovereignty and the power of the Holy Spirit. It is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to us. You see the language that's used here. It just comes out of Peter. He's not probably not making this his major point. It's just assumed that we believe the Old Testament, we believe the New Testament as the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll notice in the New Testament that the apostles are self-consciously communicating in their letters as the very Word of God. Look, for example, in uh, 1 uh, Thessalonians. This would be on page uh, 1930 or 1940. And if you look at the 
top of that page, 1940, this is 1 Thessalonians 2.13. Here's how the Apostle Paul speaks to these Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, who were in Macedonia, you know, probably his favorite area. These people were so supportive of him. And he says in verse 13, And we also thank God continually because when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. Do you see how self-consciously Paul is saying, I'm communicating to you the word of God. So your Old Testament, the prophets claim, thus says the Lord, and Jesus Christ confirmed the Old Testament by quoting from it and expressing his own faith in every jot and tittle. In the New Testament, you have the apostles who are clearly claiming to be communicating the scriptures and, and claim that it is God-breathed, all that they speak and say. So there you have it, your Old and your New Testament. And Peter is simply saying, this is the way you're going to think clearly. Gentlemen, I'm sorry, if you don't study your Bible, you're not going to think clearly. I see it all the time, whether it's dealing with uh, your, your marriage issues, dealing with your grandchildren or your children, what should you do as a parent? You're not going to have discernment without reading your scriptures. And here's what I find through the years, that as I study the Bible more and more, with you in here or on my own, when I'm studying the Bible more and more, I, I, I just seem to gain the ability to diagnose and to strategize on almost any issue. It's not always easy. There are very complex ethical issues that you, some of you present to us and we get in the trench with you and try to figure things out. Some of these are very complex. And yet what I found through the years as you learn more and more of the Scriptures, you, know, you can smell a rat, can't you? When you deal with the real thing, you can just smell a rat. It just doesn't sound right. You've been dealing with the Word of God so much, it, you can just see there's something wrong there. You may not initially know exactly what it is, but you know something's not quite right. And then you dig down and search what it is. You also find that as you deal with life circumstances over and over again with the Scriptures, that God just gives you an increasing wisdom. Wisdom is not just with your head, it's with your feet. You learn wisdom with your head and your feet and your hands. It's your whole life. That's the reason Paul and Peter says, add to your faith goodness and knowledge and love. So your wisdom is coming from practice as well as reading the Scriptures. But it's putting the scriptures into practice that will give you increasing discernment. And those of you who've been at it a while, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Those of you who are starting out, I'm just telling you, you're going to find that you have increasing ability, increasing capacity to deal with the issues in your life as you tackle one at a time and as you deal with them in the light of the scriptures. That's what Peter is saying. He's just saying, look, let's go back to kindergarten. You know, as what's his name said, the most important things I learned, I learned in kindergarten. Let's go back to kindergarten, believe the Bible. Study your Bible. Apply the Bible. And whether it has to do with the end times and the final judgment of God or whether it has to do with anything else, study the Word of God. Now, secondly, when we come to verses 3 through 7, notice what else Peter is saying about wholesome thinking, how you're going to think clearly about your life and about your future. He says wholesome thinking will expose false teaching. That's just what we're saying. That as you study the Word of God, False teaching will become more clear to you as false. Now, first of all, in verses 3 through 4, we have this very encouraging 
principle, and that is that some scoff at God's final judgment. He says, first of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. So some will scoff. And I want you to notice that, you know, you might think this is discouraging. That he's saying, you know, you're going you're gonna to belong to a religion or you're going to believe certain things that others are going to make fun of. Actually, it's very encouraging. This was written 2,000 years ago, uh, 1,900 years ago. And Peter is saying, let me tell you what's going to happen. And when it happens to you, you're going, oh, yeah, that happened 2,000 years ago. Well, let me tell you, it happened more than 2,000 years ago. Take your Bibles and turn back to Malachi, which we studied a few years ago. And this would be on page 1530. And look at what you have here in Malachi. When Malachi is issuing the word of the Lord to these folks who have re returned from Babylon, remember, the temple is rebuilt, but their moral and social life, social fabric of Israel is just a disaster. And, you know, they've they stopped bringing, they, they bring blemished lambs, they don't tithe anymore. Their preachers are out farming because they can't make a living preaching, so they're not being taught the Word of God. They have decided to trade in their old wrinkly Israelite wives for some new Palestinian chicks, and their children are marrying unbelievers. I mean, the whole social fabric is completely falling apart. And look at what's at the root of it. He says in chapter 2, verse 17, You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied Him, you ask? By saying... All who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and He is pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? And then look at chapter 3, verse 13. You have said harsh things against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You see, we, we not only say harsh things, but we deny it. Are they, these are just like school children. When do we, when do, we do that? What, what are you talking about? Verse 14. You have said it is futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out His requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly the evildoers prosper. And even those who challenge God escape. Wow. You see what they were saying after the return from Babylon. They were saying the wicked are getting by with anything. It doesn't make any difference whether there's good or evil. There is no final judgment on these matters. And we are going around with sackcloth and ashes, confessing our sins, acting like a bunch of nincompoops, wasting our time. That's what they were saying. Which is fundamentally revealing they didn't believe in the final judgment of God. And he, of course, tells them in Malachi, hey, watch out. Uh, fire's coming soon. And I will send Elijah and so on. Look now in Psalm 73. If you turn back to 880, page 880 in your Bible, Psalm 73. And here in this famous psalm of Asaph, what you have is the wicked seem to be prospering. And look what happens to the believers. Uh, this is Psalm 73. Speaking of the wicked in verse 4, page 880, the psalmist says, They have no struggles. 
Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from burdens common to man. They're not plagued by human ills. You see how, how believers just whine and complain. <laughs> and we're saying, those, those non-Christians, they don't have any problems. They just seem to be so happy and get along just fine. Right. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree. They increase in wealth. Look at this verse 13. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been plagued. I've been punished every morning. Oh, I'm so, I'm so sorry. <laughs> the other believer just, just having a big pity party. You know, I've been trying to live this Christian life. And I have put limitations upon the things that I do. And I have given to the poor. And I have impoverished myself to enrich other people. And I have not been unfaithful to my wife. And I have, even when she wouldn't uh, roll around with me in bed. And I have, I have held back. And I, and I, have, not I have not killed anybody. And, and I was kind to the people who were unkind to me. And look at these rich people. And look at these wicked people. They just don't have any problems. Wah, wah, wah. And you see what happens? The scoffers, the wealthy scoffers, have started to get to you. You're starting to believe them. That's the problem. And Peter is saying, look, this is an age-old problem. It goes all the way back millennia ago when people attach themselves to reality and they frame up life according to God's word. You're going to hear scoffers, and they're going to start, they're going to start getting in your head. And you're going to start asking yourself some questions. You may not believe what they believe, but you do begin to ask certain questions. And you do begin to get plagued, as he says. I'm plagued. I'm plagued with my own thoughts, my own doubts, my own wanderings, my own jealousy. Frankly, I'd like to have a sexual life like they do. That looks like fun to me. I'd like to have no barriers on my own conscience. You begin to talk to yourself this way, and then, then look what happens. In verse 15, uh, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. Verse 17, till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. There you go. If you do not frame it up to get the end of time, in your present time thinking, you cannot think clearly. You will be plagued. You will be stupidly, foolishly jealous of people who are going to turn into toast. And you then become the fool. Because they at least are having fun in this life. And you're not going to have fun in either one. You are living for eternity. And the fun and the joy that you have is an eschatological invasion into time into your heart as you are beginning to taste the privileges of citizenship in heaven. 
And if you can't get that taste in your mouth, that beautiful, sweet taste of glory itself, you will not be able to resist these wanderings, this plague that will rest upon you. That is what Peter is saying. Back, back now to Second Peter. He's saying scoffers will come. They always have. And that's the reason I'm pleading with you. Stick with the Word of God. You've got a choice to make. Are you going to believe the way other people frame things up? Are you going to believe the way the Bible frames it up? And are you going to believe it, not just because it's revealed and you just do it as mere duty, but are you going to do it because you can taste it? You enter the sanctuary. And as you enter the sanctuary of God, whatever your sanctuary is, it can be your place of worship on Sunday morning, it can be out in the woods, it can be Amen Bible study, but you enter the sanctuary and the end of things becomes clear to you again. Not just their destiny, but your destiny. And that once again gives you the glorious Christian vision. That's what a man has to have is a vision for life. And your vision is big and bold and radiant. And it brings life and light into everything that you're doing here in the present time. Without that, you cannot live a Christian life. That's the reason Peter is taking this on with both barrels. So he says, first of all, be encouraged and understand scoffers are going to come. So don't be shocked. And don't be shocked that you begin to ask some questions that may seem very threatening to you, to your own mind. Go back to the Bible. Psalm 73, Malachi 3 and 4. Go back to the Bible. See how other people have dealt with it. They got into the sanctuary. They got their heads straight. And then they went out and lived based on what they saw in the sanctuary of God as they studied His Word. So you'll notice that there are two ways they scoff. First of all, with their words. And they say, where is this coming He promised? And you'll find all kinds of words that people use. You'll find some in Ezekiel 12. You'll find some in Matthew 24. Where is He? He hasn't come around lately. He said He was going to be coming back, they said. In the parable Jesus tells in Matthew 24, where is he? So they don't think he's coming back, so they beat up the other servants. And then he comes back, and they're in big-time trouble. And they do it with their lifestyles. You'll notice in verse 3, the scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. And once again, in Amos chapter 6, you will see, in fact, let's turn to Amos 6. That passage too, is too good to pass up. Uh, and that's on page 1448. Amos 6, you may remember in our study of the Minor Prophets, Amos is speaking to Israel, and he pronounces a woe to them. And if you'll look at the language, you'll see how this unbelief in the end times brings evil behavior. Beginning with verse 3, he says about them, Amos 6, 3, You put off the evil day and bring near a reign of terror. Do you see that? You put off the evil day and bring near a reign of terror. You lie on beds inlaid with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest lotions, but you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, you will be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and lounging will end. So he says, because you don't believe in the final day, because you do not believe in the judgment of God, look at your behavior. You're into leisure, comfort, getting the most you can. You only go around once to all the rest, grabbing for all the gusto. You're living a fat life because you don't believe there's any 
final outcome to this matter. So you see how the two are tied together. And Peter's saying the same thing in chapter 3. He's saying these scoffers, all you need to do is look at their lifestyle, by and large, and you'll find a lifestyle that's connected to their own teachings. Now, if you'll look in verses 5 through 7, he analyzes the scoffers and their problem. And basically what he's saying is the scoffers ignore some facts. And the way he describes it, they deliberately forget certain things. And you know what? If you've ever had a conversation with a scoffer and they begin to get serious about their own logical inconsistencies and their own reasons for choosing what they do, they'll tell you they deliberately forget certain things. I was talking with a man just a couple of weeks ago. He's a very successful, very successful businessman. And he's in his 50s. And he's basically been living for his own pleasure. And he asked to see me because he wants to reconsider the religion of his mother, who's deceased. And she was a Christian. And if you just listen to him talk about how he frames his life up and the things that he's ignored deliberately over 50 years of life, then you see, of course, they deliberately forget certain things. And there are certain ways you can forget things. You can go out in sexual license and try to just fill your lust. You can take alcohol or drugs and try to escape. You can intellectually block certain things. I was talking to a, an academic person, very bright person in one of our high-level universities just this past month, talking about his life and his ministry, which I appreciate very, very much. He's very well known in his own field, and he is a, a very fine, upstanding Christian man. Uh, he wasn't reared in a Christian home, but he became a Christian later on in life and is a very serious thinker. And we were talking about the struggles of being a consistent Christian in the academy, in the university system. And he said, Sandy, you don't know the half of it. He said, you all hear about a few cases where someone's been denied tenure. In fact, in his university, a young Christian man in his department was being denied tenure that very month. Uh, he sent out an email to me the other day uh, telling me that that had been reversed by the president of the university uh, because they probably would have been sued. But he said, you hear about these isolated cases, but he says, Sandy, it is all the time. There's a deep resentment of anyone who holds to uh, the Orthodox Christian faith, anyone who believes the Bible. And he said, what's so amazing is you're dealing in an environment with brilliant people. And he said, I've been at this for a few decades, and I, I'm continually shocked at how brilliant people can be so stupid, so blind, so ignorant of basic facts. And he said, the only way to explain it is an intentional ignorance. And here's what Peter is saying. You know, what... There's nothing new under the sun, gentlemen. Uh, they deliberately forget. It's not a matter of people's intelligence. It's a matter of their worldview. It's a matter of what they want in life. And what's driving your intellection is what you want. And if you don't want the things that God says that human beings need in order to be human, you are going to 
forget deliberately things that would challenge whatever worldview you had. And that's the reason that Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that what God has made and what He has made, it is obvious that there is a God and that He's very powerful. His divinity and His eternity are made known in what He has created and therefore men are without excuse. And we deliberately forget that His fingerprints are everywhere, especially when you look at the human body and the human mind and what it means to be human. Where could that possibly have come from but from deity Himself? People deliberately forget that. That's what scoffers do. And when you're going off the ranch, when you are disobeying the Christian ethic, you're deliberately forgetting something. You are. And you know it as well as I do. And, you know, I've deliberately sinned against the Lord. I, I, I confess that. It's an awful thing to confess. That here's a, a minister of the gospel, a person who's been a Christian for 30 years, over 30 years, and I would deliberately sin against I've done that. And I do it. It's awful to deliberately forget something and deliberately violate something. And, of course, repentance is what restores us. That's the reason we have to stay in regular, continual repentance. You don't ever get to a level where you cease to repent. You don't ever get to a level where you're no longer tempted. You never get to a level where you stop sinning. You're in continual repentance and faith and trust in the Lord's goodness towards you. But here, when someone confirms themselves as a scoffer against the Word of God, they are deliberately forgetting something. Now, here's what they're forgetting. They are basically forgetting a view of history that is real. It's their whole view of history that is off. They are basically saying, the scoffers are basically saying, where is this God you're talking about? Things go on as they have before. You see this language in verse 4? He says, where is this coming Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Now what they're forgetting, first of all, is the word that the scoffers themselves are using, the word creation. At creation, things obviously didn't just go on as they were before. The argument is, there's going to be no final judgment because things go on as they did before. And the first thing that the Apostle Peter mentions in this regard in verse 5 is that God formed the earth by His Word. You said it yourself. Everything goes on as it has since creation. Well, hold on just a minute. What about creation? Things didn't go on as they were before then. Do you see? There was an intervention. God invaded history. And he did it in a miraculous way. You're saying no miracles. You're saying things, you have a scientific view, a reasonable man's view, a plausible view, a practical view, a pragmatic view, that things just go on as they had before. They're perfectly predictable according to scientific laws of the universe. Well, what about creation itself? Where did the scientific laws come into play there, my friend? And those who want to eliminate the whole idea of creation are having a very, very hard time. Bless their little pea-picking hearts. You can take an evolution in your own mind, denying certain facts, of course, all the way through. You can deny certain facts and build a model for evolution, but guess what? You still have something instead of nothing. And somebody's got to explain that. We have an explanation. God! You know, there was a debate two weeks ago in California 
the, the title of the debate was, and I think it was in the synagogue, it was Christian God, Jewish God, or no God. And I believe Dinesh D'Souza was the, the, defending the Christian God, and Dennis Prager was defending the Jewish God, and uh, Christopher Hitchings was there as a no God person. And when Dennis Prager got up to speak, he said, you know, those of us who are theists have something to explain. It's a very difficult problem. And that is why there's evil in the world and human suffering. If there is a good God, how, how can we have all this stuff? We have a huge problem to explain. And then he looked at Christopher Hitchens and said, you have to explain everything else. <laughs> and here's one thing you have to explain. If everything goes on just as it has from one generation to the next, what about creation? Things didn't go on just as they have. And then Peter secondly reminds him that, you know what? We already have an example of judgment. You're scoffing at judgment? Well, let me just tell you. There's already an example in the flood, the flood of Noah. God has already shown that he intervenes in history and that he judges. And all you have to do is turn to Genesis 6 through 9 and you'll find it. And Jesus himself refers to it in Matthew 24, verse 37. As in the days of Noah, he said, people were eating and drinking, just going about their business, as though things go on just as they have from the beginning of time with no interruption. People were acting that way as though there's no intervention from God ever. He says, just as in the days of Noah, that's exactly what he's do they're doing. He said, so it's going to be again. Because people think that everything will just go on as it has before. He says, the scoffers are intentionally forgetting something. Creation and the flood. And then he says, thirdly, God will judge again by his word. This is, this is Peter's reasoning. He did it at creation. He did it at the flood. And he's going to do it again. Now, he's not going to do it with water because he promised not to do that again. He's going to do it with fire. And you find this throughout the scriptures that fire is used, including in Malachi where we were just looking, as a symbol of God's judgment to come. John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3 says that I baptize you with water. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So there is a baptism of fire that is coming. And Jesus speaks of this also in Matthew chapter 13 in the parables. So there's going to be fire and there will be at that time the destruction of the ungodly. This is what God is going to do again. Now, there are different views of history. There's the one that was so popular in the beginning of the 20th century, the the view of inevitable progress, you know, inspired by the German philosopher Hegel, that everything is inevitably moving toward a progressive development in history. You have a thesis and antithesis, and then they make a synthesis, which creates a new thesis and antithesis, a new synthesis, and it, it inevitably progresses. And of course, Marxism would be one expression of that, you know, between the, the, the proletariat or the, the, the bourgeoisie and, and the proletariat, you have thesis and antithesis and they merge and conflict and create a new, th and then it just continually progresses, giving us the whole communistic system of government with this sort of uh, materialistic utopia. That's one view of history of inevitable progress. You certainly have the old Greek view of a cyclical view of history, that history just cycles around. And of course, you see some of that, don't you? There is a sense in which there is sort of a cyclical movement to history. And some would say that's all that history is. It just goes around in circles. You have the scientific view of history that, that uh, I just tried to describe a moment ago, but at least it has an end because it's winding down. And then you have, fourthly, perhaps we could say a meaningless view of history 
History is bunk, as someone once said. And you have nihilism in the last century that basically says nothing means anything. Think about that. Nothing means anything. And they're basically saying that history is meaningless. It's foolish to study it because it means nothing. And you must simply impose meaning, as the existentialists would say, impose meaning on a meaningless world. And that's their view of history. But the Christian view of history involves several things. And you see it here in Peter's description of it. God is in control. That's where we start. God made and sustains all things. He is sovereign over this world, over this cosmos, and over time itself. He is both outside of time, and He has, through His Son, and by the ministry of His Spirit, come into time. But He is sovereign over time. And time began when He made it. When you have matter and motion, you end up with time. Because time is the measurement of movement between elements of matter. And so time and space were created by Him. He is Lord of all of history. Secondly, human beings are made in His image and are sinful, which creates the conflict that is in history. Thirdly, God has a plan to save through history. That's a Christian view of history, that God is at work sovereignly as the owner and creator and sustainer of the universe. He is at work sovereignly to save it. And fourthly, there's going to be a consummation, an end to all of time and space. There's going to be a finality to all things. There's a Christian view of history. And it challenges all these other worldviews. And Peter is saying, this is what frames up life for us. Now, lastly, we have a few minutes here to finish with verses 8 through 10. And he's saying, thirdly, wholesome thinking not only is grounded in the Scriptures and clearly exposes the false teaching of these false worldviews, but wholesome thinking will focus on the day of the Lord. If you're thinking clearly, there's a movement, there's a mental and spiritual movement in your whole being toward the last day, toward the end of time, toward the consummation of history. You get it, and it's making a difference to you in the way that you live. He says, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. He says, if they deliberately forget, for sure let yourself not forget the beloved of, of God. First of all, this is contrary to human perspectives. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. Don't forget because you're likely to forget. Human perspectives will take you away from it. Number one, his view of time differs from our view of time. Coming from Psalm 90, verse 4, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. Why do you say the Lord is slow? You don't know what slowness is. You don't understand the meaning of time itself. You're bound in time. You don't understand. I'm not blaming you. I'm the same way. I'm, all I'm used to is the sequence of hours and minutes and seconds and days and weeks and years. And that's how I measure things. But I'm not God. And God doesn't measure things the way I measure them. He's outside of time. I don't know what that means. I can't conceive of that. And that's how, that's how far off I am from understanding. I can't even conceive of it. So when I start taking the promises of God that are revealed in the Scriptures, which I have every reason to believe and put my faith in, the pagan doesn't have good reasons to believe what he's believing except he wants something. I have very good reasons to believe what I believe. And so I'm going to start questioning God based on my view of time. Peter says, hey, hold on just a minute, chill out. Just realize how little you know. His ways are higher than our ways. 
His thinking is higher than our thinking. He is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. Who here is any of those three things? So his view of time differs from ours. Secondly, his patience is greater than ours. Here's the irony of it. These people are impatient. Where is his coming? And here's the irony. The reason he doesn't come is because he happens to be patient. Unlike you, who are complaining about where the heck is he? And beginning then to adopt unbiblical, untrue worldviews to frame up your life because you think you understand the scope of time. You think your calendar, you got it all figured out and planned out, and you think he's not showing up on time. So you're going to begin to question his promises because he's not working on your schedule. Peter says, you really need to think again. Don't forget this. He says, don't forget this. I know this is really simple, but remember, the things that are most important are the most simple things. And here's a simple thing. God is outside of time. And for him, a thousand years is like that. So chill out. Keep your faith right where it was in the Lord Jesus Christ and His coming. His patience is greater than ours. Isn't it wonderful to read here, as we find in the Old Testament, that the reason for the 2,000 years since Jesus was here the first time, there's a reason for this, and here is the reason. God is infinitely merciful and patient and kind and gracious. And if He had come right away, you wouldn't be in heaven. Neither would I. He waited until he's, he's waiting until he gathers in all of his people. He is patient. He is not willing that any should perish. And he's going to bring in all of his people. And he's going to take all the time that it takes to get that 100th sheep. Even if he's got the 99, he's going to get the 100th and bring him in because he's very patient, unlike me. And when you praise God this Lord's Day, and you go to the house of God to worship, and you lift up your hearts and your voices, you can... Praise Him because He's patient. And because He didn't do things on your time frame. And because He didn't, you're saved. So Peter says, don't forget this. That the very things that sometimes frustrate you, you wonder where God is and where is justice, the very things that frustrate you are the things that save you. And we're just too young and too limited and too ignorant to understand how great God is in His goodness to us. And then B, you'll notice that it's not only contrary to human perspectives, but contrary to normal experience. First of all, this is going to happen very suddenly. It's going to come like a thief in the night, as Jesus says. And as we're told by the Apostle Paul, and we're told by the Apostle John in Revelation, and you're told by the Apostle Peter, do you think, do you think that's enough? If Jesus tells you, John tells you, Paul tells you, Peter tells you, is that enough? That it's not going to be when you thought it was going to be. I remember in 1988, I was preaching in Papua New Guinea, and some missionary comes up to me and gives me a book. This is the year, you know, 1988. I said, what's that? He said, well, it's 40 years since the establishment of Israel. You know, that's when Jesus is coming back. I said, really, this year? He said, yeah, it's September. He said, well, we've got two months left, three months left to go. I said, here, take this book back. I'm not going to waste my time. What do you mean? Jesus says, you don't know the time and the date. He says, even the Son doesn't know, only the Father. So if you knew this, you'd know more than Jesus. So here, take your book back. <laughs> People think they know when this is going to happen. They got all framed up. They figure they can look at history and the oil crisis and the conflict in Iraq, and they write books, and you buy them. And 
you know, you figure out when Jesus is going to come back. No, you can't. It's going to come like a thief in the night. So here's the point. Be ready right now. Be ready all the time. You're living on the edge of eternity right now. And that's the way we're supposed to live. Not with fear, not with slavish fear, but with reverence, reverential fear and excitement. Don't dread the end day. If you dread the end day, I'll guarantee you your eschatology is warped. If you have a proper eschatology, a proper view of the end times, you're excited about it and you want to live on the edge. So he says, it's going to come suddenly. And then lastly, it's going to come catastrophically. Look at the text. The heavens will disappear. The skies will be rolled back like a scroll, as Isaiah 34 teaches us. The elements are destroyed. The earth is laid bare. That is, if you are spending your life trying to accumulate a huge estate, here's what you can say at the last day. Hey, Sandy, no, 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 no. My ash pile is bigger than yours. That, that's all it's going to be. All the things you're storing up, all the things you're dreaming of, all that perfect health you're trying to keep for yourself, it's useless in the end day. I'm not saying be irresponsible with your money. I'm not saying don't have a good savings plan, retirement plan. I'm not saying don't take care of your body. I'm obviously not saying that. The Bible teaches us to do all of those things. I'm saying if that's where your hope is, if that's what you're living for, you are flat wasting your time and you haven't framed up life. That's the reason Peter is so strong about these false teachers and about the scoffers. He's saying, you'll always have scoffers. But remember the things that you believe that frame up life for you and give you wisdom in day-to-day practical living. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for all the equipment you give us to stand firm in Jesus Christ. And we pray that for your everlasting glory we will do so by remembering the simple things that you have made all that is, that you are governing it, ruling over it, that you have a plan to save us, and that you're sending your son one day very soon. We would live in the light of that today. In Jesus' name, amen.